Hello and welcome to The Rest is Education. I'm David Marshall and I'm here with Lucy Crahan, who's going to talk to us a little bit about her book Cleverlands and also about what she's been doing since in the world of education. Lucy, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for the invitation. I'd love to start by talking about is, uh, first of all, for those people who don't know, this book Cleverlands, it still feels when I return to it, such an interesting book, such a book that kind of I want to sort of delve more into. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how it came about? Sure. Um, so a while a while back when I um I started teaching back in 2009 and I taught for three years and became quite disillusioned with the English education system at the time, um, mainly the high stakes accountability system and the various behaviours that was driving in my school. Um, but it did make me very interested in education policy and how education policies can actually have a huge impact on the quality of education and the experience of students um, across the country. Um, so I decided to study policy, first of all, did a master's in it. Um, and then I felt like I didn't have a, a good understanding of what that actually looked like, um, you know, when diff how different policies interact in a particular culture. Um, I wanted to have a, a better understanding of, of different ways of doing that. Um, and I'd read a lot about high-performing education systems and um, systems that do well in the programme for international student assessment. Um, but I, I, having even just having read about them, it, it, usually when you look at academic studies, um, they take a single policy or a single aspect and they might compare just two countries. But, so you can read all about assessment policy, but it doesn't really give you a sense of, right, well, how does that fit in with the curriculum has that fit in with teacher training because all of these things inevitably affect each other and um, so I decided to go and have a look um, at what was happening in some of these places um, I wrote to teachers in um, actually six of the world's high performing education systems I didn't end up writing about one of them um, so um, yeah wrote to teachers in, in Finland, Shanghai, China, Singapore, Japan, Canada um, and New Zealand and asked if I could come and help out in their schools offered to to teach teach English, teach science, which is a subject that I that I trained to teach, um, or just help out in any other way that I could. Uh, and I asked if I could stay with them as well. Um, because partly I didn't, you know, I didn't have the, the money to be staying in, in hotels or even hostels. But truly the main reason for, for asking that was that I think that teachers do know more about an education system than anyone else. Um, the students obviously also have a very valuable, very important perspective, but often because they're children, in the case of primary schools, they haven't got that um, the necessary knowledge base to actually understand what it is that they're experiencing, whereas teachers do. So I felt that by staying with teachers, I could get to know them and they then would feel able to trust me and to tell me about what they really thought of the education system. So that was basically the the, the background for the book. So. I, I wrote about my experiences in each of these places and what I thought was was leading to the success. And that was that turned into the book Cleverlands. Was it 2009 or was it around, was it later than uh, that? No, no, it was, it was after my teaching and after my master's. So it was uh, 2012 to 2013. In terms of that, we're sort of about, I am right, we're about 10 years on from when you were traveling and countries, researching. Yeah. And that's, I think, particularly interesting because it feels so much has changed in 10 years. Mm. And in some ways, maybe quite a lot has remained the same and we'll be talking about that a bit later uh, you mentioned one of the sort of start-off points was PISA 
the mm. program for international student assessment. It's run by the OECD. That's a point you return to quite a lot in the book, a system for assessing different countries and effectively whether it's intended or not ranking these countries against each other. Mm. And you're looking at the top set of countries. Mm. Why is PISA so important? PISA is important because it allows for an objective measure of quality of part of an education system. And I say part of because obviously the quality of an education system is about more than just um, student results in in reading, math and science, um, which is what PISA measures. But it's really important that there is an objective measure, because if you didn't have PISA or you didn't have other international tests, then there is no way of reliably comparing education systems and how they're doing other than the purely qualitative in which case you can say well this one's different from this one in this way but there's no way of saying well actually which is which is more effective in terms of getting children to learn um and there are different ways you know and and there are different ways in which systems can be um high quality and it's and it's important that education systems are different i would not want a world in which every education system was the same so you know the cultural differences especially um, are very important but what all education systems do agree on and what i think well even if they didn't well in my opinion what all education systems should be doing um alongside other things is making sure that children are literate making sure that they are numerate making sure that they have a, um, a at least a basic understanding of science to enable them to live healthy lives and not be conned by the various um you know organizations that might seek to to sell them things or or anything else so so I do think it's it's important that we have that. And before you had PISA, well, it was very it was just what whatever country said. You know, Germany used to think it was the best education system in the world. Um, got a bit of a shock when PISA came out, and turns out they weren't. Um, and so what you end up is just the kind of the loudest the loudest politicians on the global stage make it sound like their system is doing the best. Everyone then goes and says, oh, well, what are we doing? Let's be a bit more like them. And we, and there would be no way of knowing if what they were doing is actually effective when it comes to getting students to learn or actually the opposite. Yeah. And you delve into this with a quite a lot of nuance about the ways in which education can be compared against other countries. But also, I, I love the way you look at culture as well. And the fact that you're living with people in these countries with, with teachers it gives it a different angle because you're not just looking at the reading and you're not just looking at the way in which uh, sort of numeracy is compared against countries. You are kind of seeing how classrooms are set up, for instance, and you're seeing how kind of the, the behavior system works and, and, and also how other things like tutoring plays into it and has a massive impact in certain countries. I think something else which you talk about in the book is the way in which education changes quite slowly. What I sort of wanted to ask was, how has the how has PISA influenced the UK to date in terms of its education policy? I I think that in England it's been used as a political tool. Um and that's the case in many countries. England's not unique in that respect. Um I'm not sure there's been that much intelligent policy learning from PISA. There has been some intelligent policy made in the UK um, and in England, um, but I don't think as a result of PISA, it has been referenced a lot. Um, and but you know, back um, under when Michael Gove was Education Secretary, he talked a lot about PISA, and there were some pretty significant reforms, as you'll remember, um, under his um, his reign, his jurisdiction. I don't know what you what you call it when he was Education Secretary, but I don't think that they were. I don't think that was well done. 
Um, I think that it was used as an excuse for reforms that he wanted to push anyway, particularly around school competition, the marketization of education, academization, and and, and high stakes accountability as well. Because that's one of the things actually that made me interested in what these systems were doing. One of the things I looked at in my master's was, was how on earth was this apparently, according to Michael Gove, the strong, in his words, strong accountability with autonomy was what was working in other countries. And that's why other countries were doing well in PISA. And I just could not fathom as a teacher with an ex- with, ha- with my experience of account- the accountability system in England, how on earth that could be working elsewhere. And it, w- and it wasn't, it's not what other countries are doing. Um, they haven't got the, the kind of same high stakes accountability. And yet that when I, I emailed the department um, at the time and I asked, well, what's, what's your evidence for saying that this is what high performing systems do? And it's a single graph from the OECD um, that doesn't show that systems with high accountability and autonomy do better. It shows that schools with high autonomy in high accountability systems do better. So okay, I just want to, can I just get that? I've got that correct. So it's the, it's the individual schools that, that set their own systems within a kind of larger, say, England-wide system. But it, it, it comes down to a school level. Is that right? It's, it's that in a system with high accountability, the schools with more autonomy do better. And the That's autonomy being, say. just to clarify, autonomy is, is the sense of like, I don't want to talk about necessary academies because that, that's slightly com- confusing issue, but the school makes m- most of those decisions about how it runs the systems, the behavior, the the training, that kind of thing. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, academies would be appropriate to talk about because in the English system, it is academies that have the most autonomy. Mm. But if you think about what the, the situation, you know, just to take England as an example, and this is data from around the world, but in a system, which which are the schools that are given more autonomy, that have more autonomy, they're given more autonomy by the state, it is the schools that are already doing well because... That's what happened in in England, isn't it? It was it was the schools that were already good or outstanding that could just convert into a to academy status. It was I, in my opinion, I can send you a blog to link link to if you yeah. want. It was not a. I don't think it was really a fair use of the evidence. It was misreading and extrapolating from from data that d- did not support the the policies that they put into place. So here we're here now in in twenty twenty three, and there is a current. Um, I'd say scandal involving Ofsted um, because uh, tragically a head teacher has, has uh, taken her own life uh, and it was linked to the fact that her school was going to be downgraded. Mm. Um, now that's one isolated incident and as I said, extremely sad, but it has put a lot of pressure which has been mounting on Ofsted and, and yeah. we're in a system where there is high stakes accountability um, we haven't got all the reforms that Michael Gove wanted to bring in some sort of 10 years ago. For example, I, we, I think there was talk about bringing in uh, pay by sort of performance, but that hasn't happened, thankfully. But we do have a system where Ofsted comes in for three days and two days possibly even, and then says this school is good, excellent, requires improvement. And that's that. And then that's you for another four or five years. Mm-hmm. It it does feel like a really. It, it, if you're saying it's based on a single graph, that's and a, a misreading of the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, that potentially does a lot of damage to teachers' 
and to heads and to school systems. I don't know. Is it? it, it yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. And it was not, yeah. it's not based on, on best evidence on what's happening internationally. Um, mm. in, in the high-performing education systems that I was in, there was accountability, sure, and in the sense that schools, the, the system had some way of having information about which schools were um, doing well, which schools were not doing well. But it was the way in which that, you know, something was done about that is hugely different. So rather than it being a kind of high stakes accountability where it's punitive, essentially, um, it was instead they identified where schools needed extra support and gave them extra support or extra resources to help them to improve. So it was it was kind of an uh, more of a, an answerability type of accountability rather than a culpability. Um, so it was very different. But something on, on the offset thing something that I do want to to stress that I haven't maybe I haven't been um verbal enough about this I don't for a second um want to imply that people's criticisms of Ofsted itself aren't valid I haven't been a head teacher who's been inspected so I, I don't know and so I, I completely appreciate that they may be completely on occasions completely inconsistent or different inspectors might have behaved appallingly I, I'm not commenting on that but as a as an institution the fact that like a lot of the stress of an offset inspection stems from the stakes attached, doesn't it? It stems from the fact that if you that you will publicly be branded as being, you know, being inadequate, or that you will lose your job because the school will be taken over by an academy chain. Those stakes, that's not Ofsted's decision. That's the DFE. The Department for Education is the one that sets up the the high stakes nature of Ofsted. It's not Ofsted as an organization. Ofsted's the yes, Ofsted's the inspectorate, and they may well do different things that are bad, but it is not their decision. And and actually, if you had, it might be too late now because there have been such high stakes attached to Ofsted for such a long time. It might be that even if the stakes were now removed, schools would continue to 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 fear them. But if we hadn't been through all that, and if we had Ofsted it, inspecting as it does, but where those results were not um, put into a single single word and published on a website, and there wasn't this threat of schools being taken over. And instead, Ofsted did an inspection, and then some support was put into place as a result of it not being performing highly. You wouldn't, I don't think you'd have the same problems. So it's not, everyone's pointing a finger at Ofsted, and yes, there are problems with Ofsted, but I would like that thing, some of that blame to be to be pointed at the Department for Education, because the Department for Education is the one that, that has consistently decided to and then continued to attach such high stakes deliberately mm. as a deliberate policy because it believes in competition between schools and the market in education. But you talk about schools and you talk about systems like I think Finland where there is high stakes but there's also support. Mm. Um, can you say a little bit about one of those systems? Uh, sure, how so, it works? so there's, there's not high stakes. So the, the stakes are not high. Right. There, right. Is, there is accountability in the sense that um, it's not the case that schools just get on and do whatever they like and no one ever comes to check up on them and, and notice if they're not doing well. Um, so in, in Finland, I mean, in Finland, as in Canada, the, the form of that kind of checking in or accountability is via um, effectively superintendents. They're not called that in Finland. They're called something that's Finnish, obviously. Um, but in, um, in Canada, they're called superintendents. So it's usually a former successful school leader. So it's a head teacher that's been promoted um, to like a district level position and they have responsibility for a number of schools within the district 
and they will be in and out of schools regularly. They will be visiting schools for all, you know, for all sorts of reasons um, to, to see how they're getting on. And it's not, it's not a um, inspection um, in those, those countries, but they are obviously asking questions of the head teacher being a kind of challenging friend. They talk to parents, they they visit classrooms, you know, they get a sense of if something isn't working so well, they know about it. They also have, um, there are test results in, in both of these places. So we, Finland, I think there's a misapprehension that Finland doesn't test. Finland does test. There are loads of tests actually in schools, but teacher-given tests. Um, and then from a from a kind of accountability perspective, they have um, sample-based tests where they will just take, you know, oh, right, we're just going to look at year eight geography and we're going to take, or just take a sample um, of students from each school. So it's not high stakes for the students. Um, and it's not high stakes for the school either. But it does allow the district to see how different schools are getting on and how the student test results correspond to teacher given grades. So, again, that's a way of knowing whether or not um, a school is doing well or not. I mean, in the case of Finland, ultimately, like, they will, you know, if a head teacher has had some, you know, some complaints and things aren't going well and they're not, they're not taking that on board and changing their behavior, then they will get fired. So it's not that there's no accountability, but it's just that's a kind of a, a last resort rather than a a general strategy <laughs> rather, than, rather than a general school improvement strategy. Um, and then some other countries have some kind of really more thorough systems of support as well. So Finland and Canada will, will often put it, you know, put schools in touch with other similar schools that are doing much better so they can learn from each other. In Shanghai, they have a, um, a system where if a school's performing really badly, um, they will kind of partner up with a successful school and actually pay for the, um, some teachers from the successful school to spend like a semester in the less successful school, actually teaching there and leading and kind of modeling for the the teachers there, how they could change what they're doing. And then they go back again. So they're not replacing them permanently. They are working alongside them. Um, and then and then later on, they are um, going back to their own school. So they're kind of building capacity. In the, so I'm a governor of a, a school in North London, which is in the Harringay Borough. And it it sounds like similar to what you're talking about, but on a borough wide level, in the sense that the the HEP, the Harringay Educational Partnership, has a really good support network for different head teachers across the borough, both mm -hmm. primary and secondary. And the heads themselves are part of that leadership system that go to other schools, help train and and help lead on a load of different issues. Mm -hmm. Um and the other thing that I've noticed just being a governor is that as a link governor, we go into schools once a term, we talk to children, we look at work, we talk to teachers, we we observe classes. Mm. And it's that kind of sense of being a supportive friend. Mm -hmm. we're, we're there to ask questions, we're there to assess the quality of work. All the reports that we write are written and, and can be looked at by Ofsted when they visit and usually are. Mm. And that feels like accountability. And it feels like if there was something in that school that wasn't right, it would be picked up because a, ter a termly visit by a governor that then reports back to the governing board is in itself a, a, a really strong system. So it feels like in some ways we do have things like that in England, but just that it's not part of a bigger system. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are pockets of fantastic practice in, in, in that respect in the country but it's not it's a problem that it's not systemic because mm. it means you do have you know 
but I mean, we have Ofsted, so we have accountability at the moment. It's just that the the issue in England is not we the lack have of the support. accountability; it's the the distance of the punitive sanctions attached to it. But yeah, from the support part, yes. Yeah, so some some areas are doing that. I know there's a project run by Education Development Trust or that the, that they're heavily involved in, which has um, peer reviews with head teachers doing reviews of of other schools, which which seems like quite a good model as well. It seems like there's potential there. And mm. that, but the the decisions have to be taken at the top level, going back to DFE, uh, that make that a wider system rather than just pockets of of success really going yeah. on. We're talking about countries and comparing countries, uh, but I'm really interested in the way in which regions sort of themselves can be very strong mm. versus maybe maybe other reasons regions that are not. Mm. I know the north versus the south has traditionally in the UK, in England, been quite a divided system well so is in many countries that they are run regionally um mm. so it doesn't have to be that, that, that it's national policy but you do need each region indi- indiv- individually to be strong so canada doesn't have a national education system it has several provinces each mm. one is its own education system finland does have a national education system but there's quite a lot of work that is done by municipalities so a lot of that you know that, that middle tier is really important from an accountability perspective actually as uh, this this coming about this accountability and support like going hand in hand that works only really by having a middle tier by having a you know a strong system of usually former educators who are working at the at the local authority level or at the regional level and I think part of the problem with what's happened in England is the the Tory government have got rid of the role in, in many places of local authorities in education by moving everything over to academies. And so you're lacking that that middle tier, or rather the middle tier has kind of become academy providers instead. Um, and so they try and govern via data. It's Ofsted and data. And you get, you know, a single... It's based on exam results or it's based on Ofsted saying, yes, it's outstanding or it's not. And then you, you can give that a number rather than the rich information that you get if you have uh, local authorities or superintendents, you know, regularly in and out of schools um, being much more aware of of the the situation that the school's in and, and what it might need. That's, you know, that's not to say that, that the local authority system was working particularly well previously, but um, I don't think it. the problem with it was that it was um, local authorities. Um, and I'm not sure that the answer is putting schools in competition with each other either. There's a lot there about how we operate as a system, but also I feel about how we think. Again, going back to Cleverlands, what you're looking at is different systems that have a fundamental philosophy about education that feels in different ways, different to the, to the, to, to the one that's happening in, in England right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe until we change our philosophy of what education is and how we operate it, you can't then change everything else. Cause it, if you're saying we're running by data, that's a problem from, from what I'm seeing as, as someone who goes into schools because data won't really tell you very much. Yeah, exactly. And, the, you and know, the... it tells you so much. Yeah, exactly. And the further you get away from from a school, the more reduced that data is, the less information it contains. So just moving on, uh, and I asked you earlier if you might be happy to do a little bit of prediction. We've got the PISA results uh, from 2022, which will come out, I think, in 2023 at some point. I'm not mm-hmm. sure when. <clears throat> December, right. It's, the, it's the, the first or second of December. 
Mm-hmm. What might we expect to see from those PISA results 2022? Do do we are we going to see the same trends continued? So there's been you know the, the, it doesn't change hugely each cycle. Um, the same you know the same high performers that that I visited, even though I went I went out based on the 2009 data. Um, even last year, but they were still all um, high performers, albeit Finland's results have declined somewhat. But even, even because they were so highly performing to start with, even though they have declined, they were still one of the highest performing um, European countries, um, along with Estonia. So I would, I mean, I suppose I would predict not a huge amount of change. I would expect England might go up, actually, possibly. We can talk about why in a minute. Um, I expect. Finland might continue to decline. Um, there might be some surprise performers. Estonia, probably still a high performer. I think over time, Estonia's results are going to go down as well, but probably not this cycle. Um, to get that would be my kind of crystal ball, um, <laughs> crystal ball answer. Obviously, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's really, I think you're seeing it over time, the, the kind of thing, as you said, things don't change uh, too much. Are, are we looking at, what about, the about Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland. Um, tricky to say. Um, I would, I would probably, I would suggest probably not much of a shift. Much of a shift. Um, mm. Wales is going through a huge reform at the moment, but there's nothing yeah. you know, that obviously the current reform is not going to impact the results last year, because like you know, like you alluded to at the beginning, any any policy change takes a few years to be reflected in the piece of data, because for fifteen year olds taking a test it's relevant that what their past five or even 10 years of education have been like. Um, so anything, like, a mistake often made is that people will go and visit a country and say, oh, well, the Singaporean government are saying this, this, and this. And when, what, what they're saying now is completely irrelevant from a from a learning from high-performing systems perspective, unless it was maybe the same person who has been in, in post for many, many years and is therefore very wise. But if they're like a, you know, reasonably newly appointed person what what they're saying does not have any impact obviously on the country's historic success um and it's the same same anywhere so you have to look at what countries have been doing the previous decade before the PISA results so this these PISA results coming are perhaps actually a little bit different this time because of the pandemic and given that you know the the, the prior couple of years would have been hugely disruptive so that probably will have an impact on PISA a more immediate impact because it was so dramatic in that respect I, I would think that countries that have kind of quite tightly defined curricula um, and accompanying textbooks will probably do better than countries that don't. So I would expect, you know, Japan will continue to do well. um, China, um, the regions that it enters, probably can continue to do well. Won't have had the same... This is just a prediction, by the way. This is is just what I think. But I expect that it won't have had the same impact there because the children are able... You know, they have... they, They know what the curriculum is. They have the textbooks. They can work on it at home compared to countries where students are relying on worksheets from the teachers or from what we know what the teacher says in the classroom. Estonia will probably continue to do well in that respect, actually, for different reasons, because Estonia have everything like digitalized already. Like they're, they're very ahead of other countries from a digital perspective. I think there's an important distinction as well to be made between the goals of an education system and the means by which we get there, That's essentially the end and the means. And it's mm. interesting to to see what countries are doing sometimes what they're changing is because they're changing their goals or they're trying to widen up what the goals are and i you know i think that's really that's really important especially for east asian systems that have kind of historically focused more on the testable things that they're trying to develop other things as well and that's really important but it doesn't in terms of the kind of the learning about the how 
well, we don't, we don't, if they, if, you know, Singapore are trying to do a certain thing and they've just introduced something, that's not um, going to tell us anything about how yet until we see how that develops over time. So just because Singapore have, have been good at getting their kids to pass tests does not mean that they're now going to be good at getting children to be creative. It's good that they're trying to do that, but we can't say, oh, well, this is how Singapore are trying to do that. So we should copy that too. And certainly interesting to, to have a look and have a think, but um, we, we, we just, we just can't know. So it's interesting to look at, but not really so particularly mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess this question, perhaps you've answered already. If I said, how can we measure the quality of an education system? In other words, if you are looking at different systems, what things are you looking for as telltale signs signs of a good ed- education system? And PISA is one of them. Mm-hmm. But if you were sort of just looking at these high-performing nations, what what few things would you say that tells me the system has a good quality, a broad, mm-hmm. good quality. Uh, in terms of measurable things, not I'm necessarily, looking... not necessarily oh, measurable. Okay. Just what you're what you're seeing. Okay, so you know you have to go into go into several schools and talk to parents and talk to students, and that's the main the main way you can tell. You know, are the do the students in, enjoy school? Are the parents happy with the quality of education? Um, do what what are the destinations you know when 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 children leave school do they have are they going into further education are they do they have a job are they employable are, are the children enjoying school and 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 where are they going what's their quality of life going onwards from that in terms of career but also yeah quality of life mm. that, uh, in terms of wealth and 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 prosperity where they are now but also where they're going Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're one the more other thing. one was um, teacher retention. Yes, um, I'd love to ask that. Do you have a that. high turnover of teachers or do you have teachers who who stay? I mean, having teachers who stay does not guarantee a good system because you can have teachers who stay because they have no other options. Mm. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's a telltale sign of not a good education system if all your teachers are leaving. So if, if so, there's been a lot talked about in terms of teacher retention in the UK, in the US and a few other places. Mm. Um and that obviously that has an impact on children's education because if you get good teachers leaving, then your education system is going to go down, right? That that's a no-brainer. Yes, and if you just have a high turnover, it means that the people you constantly have less experienced staff, you know, who who aren't kind of more expert practitioners. Yes. So that's obviously a problem in England. <laughs> it's uh, not a yeah. problem in the places that I was visiting. Um, because the the conditions are very different, and, workload is different, and so many things play into that, don't they? Because you've yeah. got uh, cost of living, you have uh, pensions. If there's pension changes, then you might get teachers deciding to leave. What about CPD? There's a lot more focus on teachers' access to research. Do you think this is having a positive impact on education in general in terms definitely, of CPD? Definitely, and that's why when you know you asked me about my my crystal ball predictions earlier, that's why I think England might improve in PISA because there's been much more of a focus on using research in education recently and it is feeding through into professional development initial teacher education um, and professional development in england which i think is a really good thing so i'm not i'm not anti everything england are doing by any means i mean i'm I'm kind of historically frustrated with the accountability i think it's one of the biggest problems with the english system but there is a lot of good stuff going on as well notably the the focus on on research um and in particular the focus on cognitive science research about how children learn and what we therefore might need to change about how we teach and how we structure education actually that's got to be having an impact oh um i I expect i expect so i think it's a really positive thing that's happening in england that i'm not aware of that happening to the same degree 
or at least not as as systematically elsewhere. I think mm. it's being talked about a lot in other places, but the fact that it's actually being you know embedded into policy here increasingly. And it's one reason why I think teachers stay in their jobs is if you're excited about what you're doing. If you can feel that something is exciting is happening, and I think a lot of teachers mm-hmm. feel that in a good school, there's a, a buzz around learning mm-hmm. and being a great teacher and what it means. Uh, and, and that is a good reason to stay in your job. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. It also makes, you know, gradually, I, I, I hope, I expect that it makes us feel like more of a profession. I'm not saying that teachers aren't profession, professionals already, but, you know, if you think about the, the traditional professions, medicine, law, they're based on the idea of, of a group of people or having a shared body of knowledge. And until recently, teachers haven't really had that. Um, different institutions will teach different things. A lot of it will be very theoretical, not much evidence-based. There is increasingly some really useful knowledge theories, yes, but, but more evidence-informed theories um, that teachers are now accessing and I think as that grows as teachers tap more into it we'll become better practitioners and we'll also feel more like a profession definitely definitely and and, and you can feel that um, that happening uh, and maybe linked to this um just before we finish what what's exciting you in education at the moment um what what are you getting kind of really excited by that you're seeing well this this what we've just yeah. been talking about yeah I find I do find that exciting um I think there's kind of been an explosion in in recently in terms of research that is relevant to education more and more. So I I um my undergrad was in psychology, and I that was oh it's going to make me making me feel a bit old. But like probably 15 years ago now that I was in my third year um, at university, and I took a module on education and psychology, and the extent to which things have changed just in those 15 years in terms of actually what what we can learn from the psychological sciences because it's not really one discipline it's a collection of disciplines but but from cognitive science especially but also um increasingly from neuroscience as well but you know back when i was at university that was considered to be a bridge too far we can't learn anything now there's some really interesting research on actually can this inform that it's still an open question can this inform our, our practice so i think as as the research on learning develops and not just on learning, but, you know, emotional regulation and um, other things that we would want education to contribute to, or at least be, um, have a positive influence on, um, we can become more and more informed as practitioners, as, as a profession um, and offer children uh, a better education as a result. Thank you. Do we have time for one more question or do you have to go? Do we? Go for it. Okay. So I really wanted to ask this because in Cleverlands, you write about the kind of education you want for your own child. Has this changed or developed from what you talked about at, towards the end of the book? No, no, it hasn't. I still want I still want the same things for my kids that I did then. Now that they actually exist, rather than being purely hypothetical, <laughs> yeah, I want the same things. Um, which is, you know, I want them to, I want them to know a lot about mm. all sorts of different things. I want them to be kind of well read, if that, if that makes any sense, or, or well versed in lots of different areas because it's because it's interesting because it's important for them just being part of, of a culture, both both the national culture and the global culture. Um, I want them to know enough that they are then able to pursue their own studies in whatever area they think most interesting. So that side of things I think is, is very important still. I want them to, to develop socially 
um, as individuals. I want the school to be a, a really positive, nurturing environment that treats, you know, that treats children with respect and gets them to support each other. And, and I want them to be confident. I want them to um, be kind. All of these things, you know, obviously a lot of these things I will try and to, to do to help them with myself as a parent. But a lot of this, you know, schools, schools do have an impact. And I also, and I think a very a broad curriculum is really important too, which is why I said in the book that I'd send them to school in Canada is because Canada has a nice balance because it does focus, you know, um, on, on academics. Um, but it, but it does have a very broad um, sense of education and different clubs and co-curricular activities, they call them and lots of music and lots of drama and lots of sports and all sorts, you know, whatever, <laughs> um, whatever the kid's interested in, it, it's, it's there, which, which I really like as well. So yeah, broadly, broadly speaking, even now they exist, um, they have, you know, the, the existence of these children hasn't changed what I want for them. <laughs> that's great. And that's a really good place to end on. You know, we, we, speaking broadly, we want children who know a lot. We want children who can go into, to, to any area they want to go into. We want children who are confident. We want children who are kind. Mm. And, and that feels like the foundations of a really good education system, wherever you are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Lucy, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, thank you for having me. Thank you. And you've been listening to The Rest is Education. I'm David Marshall. I'm here with Lucy Crayon. Please read her book, Clever Lands, so you can get Clever Lands uh, on Kindle or on uh, in a book, in a real book. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you.